Well, it is uh, good to be here. It's good to be back. Uh, it's been a while. For those of you who don't know me, I'm DL. I'm along with uh, Pastor Daniel. Uh, we're the pastoral staff here at Harvest. Um, I've been away, my family and I, for about six weeks. Uh, we're <coughs> traveling in, in different places, but mainly, mainly in Virginia. Uh, really good time of rest and, uh, yeah, just renewal and fellowship and encouragement. So uh, a lot of reflection, a lot of reflection, uh, a lot of, uh, yeah, just time for me to think and to yeah, just think about what God is doing in, in my heart, my life, our, our community here, our church, our area, and what the Lord is calling us to be, who he's calling us to be, and what he's calling us to do. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for your prayers and your support and for sending us uh, so well and, and so lovingly. Um, it's good to be back. Um, I wanted to write a little bit about what my time was like, um, but I felt like there were other things that were a little bit more pressing that needed to be said. And so inside of your bulletin, hopefully you guys all got that um, every week inside your bulletin, in addition to sermon notes and announcements and things like that, um, there's a letter that I write that kind of, well, that doesn't kind of, but that shares uh, things that are in my heart. Um, if you, if you don't pick that up, hopefully uh, you have our app. If you download our app, you can get, uh, you can get that, that letter on, there, <coughs> on your app as well. But um, one of the things that are inside of your bulletin, uh, just my thoughts on, on Charlottesville and what's happened over the past uh, eight, to eight, nine days. Uh, Charlottesville, beloved town to me. I went to college there. I spent five years of my life there. Um, I visited there about a handful of weeks ago. During my time away, uh, I was in Charlottesville, and so... Um, just my thoughts. Uh, I, I wasn't here last week, obviously, to address it in, 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 in time and space as it was happening, but um, I felt it was important for me to, to share um, what I thought and what I felt, um, the Word of God leading us to, uh, yeah, to, to say and to respond in light of what happened last week. So um, in a nutshell, it's evil, it's wrong, all hatred is, um, but more than that, I think it's spiritual. I think there's a, a lot of uh, oppression and, and and uh, things that we don't see that are going on. And so because of that, the battle also is a spiritual battle, and it's unseen. And so I want to really encourage us to be in prayer um, for our country, uh, for just the, the state of, of our world. Uh, we, need, we need God. We need revival. We need the good news. We need the hope that he alone can, can bring to the world. Uh, on the flip side of that uh, is, a, is a next over the next two weeks just a, a guide to how to pray as we lead up to our revival and retreat weekend. Uh, we've got R&R Weekend. It's it historically been for us a time uh, of really just great things happening. Uh, several people in their testimony of how they came to know Jesus will point back to that time being a time where something was unlocked, a prison door was unlocked, a sin was broken, uh, something was revealed to me where I realized my need for a Savior. And so um, we are just so... Uh, understanding and aware of the simple fact that all it takes is one encounter with Jesus to change a person's life forever. Right? That's all it takes. And so I want to encourage us to pray in advance of that, um, to really prepare our hearts if we have not been doing so already, but to begin to do that in order that we could experience all that God has uh, for us during that time. So please uh, do take some time to do that. Um, it feels a, a, little bit, <clears throat> a little bit weird to be back in the pulpit. I haven't preached for quite some time, I feel like. Um, and so there's always a little bit of, you know, of, of rust and, and butterflies and things like that. Um, I will say that during my sabbatical, during my time away, I preached at a couple different places that are very you know, familiar places to me. Uh, for the past five years, I've been, been preaching at a conference called JGen, Joshua Generation, out in uh, Taylor University of Indiana. Um, those people there have become... Uh, 
dearly beloved to me. I love it. I love the people there. <clears throat> so I was able to spend a couple, uh, couple days there uh, preaching the Word of God. I also spoke one time at my home church in Virginia where I spent 25 years of my life. I uh, grew up in that church. A uh, lot of familiar faces, a lot of people that I loved. Um, I loved both of those venues. But uh, I will say there's no place like home. And I say this wherever I go and whenever I go somewhere. Um, I love the opportunity. I always embrace the opportunity to share the Word of God. Uh, but there's no group that I want to feed more than my people here at Harvest because you guys don't care. You're not judging me. I hope you're not, you're not, uh, you know, you're not impressed by me. You're just, hey, just give us the word, and it, it's pure, it's simple, and so uh, this is good for my soul. It's good to be back. It's good to be here, uh, and so thank you for being faithful in being our church and being the church and for uh, listening to the word of God. <clears throat> During um, our, our family's time away, we spent time in, in several different places. Um, I haven't changed. I'm going to sit in just a sec, but... Uh, we spent time in a few different places, and one of the things that we're trying to do, uh, well, one of the things that we obviously wanted to do was, was do things that we couldn't do, we can't do here. Uh, visit people, visit places, do things that uh, we just aren't able to do in, in Florida. Some of those things are, uh, you know, see friends, see pastors, see uh, folks that we haven't seen in a long time, family and, and friends. We also, um, you know, spent time in, in Denver, uh, saw mountains, went hiking, uh, really cool, went hiking in, in, uh, in, in Virginia, did a lot of neat things. Um, but of all the things that we did and all the places we went and all the things that we saw, um, to me, there's one memory and one image that's the most vividly seared in my mind. Even now, as I think about it, if I, you know, as I'm looking at you, it's kind of like a magic eye thing. I'm seeing you guys, but behind you, I'm seeing this scene. And it's not because it's beautiful, not because it was majestic, not because it was one of the best sights that I saw. In fact, it was one of the most probably disturbing to me. But Olivia and I were driving in, in, in Denver. We left the kids behind in Virginia, which is awesome. <laughs> but we, uh, we were in Denver, and we're driving downtown about, you know, a few blocks from where the Colorado Rockies baseball stadium is. And we're stopped at a stoplight, and I looked out um, the passenger side window past Olivia, and in downtown Denver, there was a street corner, sidewalk, there was a building, and there was a ledge, and people were sitting on, on, the, on, on the ledge of the building with their feet on the sidewalk, some of them on the sidewalk, about six, seven of them, and all of them were in some way uh, disabled. There was one guy, and, and, and all of them were clearly homeless, tattered, dirty, clothes, oil stains, holes within their attire, one guy in a wheelchair um, sitting there and big, you know, crazy, frizzy hair. There was a, of the six or seven, there was at least one woman, the second person was a woman, and she was laughing, and whenever she smiled, this toothless smile stared back, and she was, uh, had the look of someone who was mentally handicapped. There was a, another guy there who had no legs, and he was just sitting there, and, and, and where his legs used to be, should have been, were just kind of hanging around there, six, seven people. And there was this weird feeling inside of me. You know, this, I don't know if you get that same feeling of this magnetic sense. <clears throat> it was magnetic in the sense that it was equal parts attractive. I couldn't stop looking at them. In fact, at one point, Olive said to me, stop staring at them. And so I, I turned away, but 
it was equal parts repulsive to me at the same time. And I, I say that with just, I get it with a repentant heart and with just a sense of brokenness within me that there was something that made me want to turn away as quickly as I could from looking at them as well. There was this attraction and this draw to them, but there was this repulsion that made me want to turn as quickly away from them as I possibly could. And I thought about why that was, and I recall the words of a former professor at the Reformed Theological Seminary where I studied, who had adopted several children, all of whom were handicapped, and he saw that same attraction, repulsion thing happen in the eyes of people who saw him out with his children. And he said, the reason why we feel this way, when we look at people like my kids, we look at handicapped people, is because when we see them in all of their outer brokenness, what we're seeing is a picture of our own inner brokenness. And the same repulsion that we feel when we see our own sin gets projected outwardly on people that we sometimes see as well. I wonder then, if seeing those people and seeing a reflection of my heart was one of the great gifts that God could have given to me to help me to see the true condition of my heart and how much I need to repent and how much I need to change in order for me to be the man that God wants me to be. Today I want to look at a passage where the scene is very similar to that street corner in downtown Denver. It comes to us from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, it's a passage that I've preached on in the past before, and it's one that continues to bring fresh understanding to me. Whenever I look at it, it challenges me and it convicts me, and it causes me to long for more of Jesus. And as we look into it together, I want this to be the backdrop upon which we begin to think about what's going to happen in a couple weeks as we come to Revival and Retreat Weekend. What needs to happen in order for us to have a life-changing encounter with Jesus that would leave us forever different? that causes us to rise up out of our brokenness and into a place of new health in a way that we may not have been able to imagine and envision before. John chapter 5, 1 through 15. And this is God's word. As you read, as you hear this narrative, I want to in, 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 encourage you <clears throat> to imagine and envision this scene in your mind's eye. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now, <clears throat> there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, okay? a big pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Verse 3, here a great number of, of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, somebody else, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. 
So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. This is God's word. I don't think it's too much of a stretch for you to see how a street in downtown Denver with six or seven handicapped people is a scene eerily similar to the pool of Bethesda 2,000 years ago. See, at that pool of Bethesda, which means the house of mercy, anytime you see the word Beth in Hebrew, it means the house of something, Bethel, uh, Bethsaida, Uh, whatever it might be. Beth means house. This means the house of mercy or the house of pity, and you can understand why it's called the house of mercy because there, countless people, it says in verse 3, a great number of disabled people used to lie. If there's any group of people who are pitiable, who are in need of mercy, it's these people, the blind the lame, and the paralyzed, and they're hanging out at this pool with this false sense of hope because at the pool of Bethesda, you see reservoirs in the hills would cause the water to rise and fall, right? And, and, and legend said that in that moment, the, an angel is stirring the water. It wasn't really true, but that's what they thought. They said an angel is stirring the water, and after the water rises, the first one to get into the water would get healed of their disease. And so here's this group of people gathered United by a common brokenness, a common pain, a common hurt, common illness, inability. And they're drawn into that one place because of this false sense that maybe today could be the day that healing comes. And out of all of these people, Jesus goes to one guy who for 38 years of his life has been paralyzed, cannot move, has no use of his limbs, faculties, nothing just sits there, has to be carried everywhere. If, you, if you're an invalid, it means that your bowel movements and your, uh, your bladder movements cannot be controlled. So you're just going potty everywhere you go, wherever you go. And so you smell, you've got no friends, no one wants to be around you. In the midst of this pool of human suffering, Jesus goes to the one who is the most down and out of all of the down and out, the worst of the worst. Jesus goes to him and he asks him a seemingly ridiculous question. He says, do you want to get well? Is that a crazy question? If you've been paralyzed for 38 years of your life and someone says to you, do you want to get well, what would you say? But obviously the reason Jesus asked it is because the question is a whole lot more significant and a whole lot deeper than we might think. Because the similarities don't end simply with a pool in Jerusalem with a street in downtown Denver. Can I submit to you that right now where we are today in Winter Garden, we are at a pool of Bethesda. We are on a street in downtown Denver, and the brokenness may not be visible to everyone on the outside, but what we see in this picture is a picture of the invisible brokenness that all of us carry in our lives. And the question that Jesus says to you and to me this morning is, do you want to get well? 
And it's a question that is a whole lot more significant than you might think because a great majority of us in here would say immediately to that question, yes, I want to get well. I don't want to live a prison to my own temptation. I don't want to live in a prison of my own body of sin. I don't want to live enslaved to the addictions that have enslaved me for the past 38 years of my life. I don't want to live this way. Of course I want to get well. But the question that Jesus asks is a whole lot more significant than we might think at first And so as he hangs this banner over us, harvest, do you want to get well? What is Jesus saying? And what do we need to see as we prepare to encounter Jesus not only today, not only every day, but as we lead up to this revival and retreat weekend? What is Jesus asking us? What do we need to see? Three things. The first thing is this. You have to see, you have to know how desperate your situation is. Okay, you have to know how desperate your situation is, and the problem with the great majority of us is that we don't think we're that bad. And if we don't think we're that bad, then our hearts will not be moved when we think, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If we think that we can work our way into heaven, if we think we can serve our way towards forgiveness, then we will never be mesmerized by the beauty of what we've just sung today. There's nothing, oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. The reason why this group of people could not think how precious is the work of Jesus because they were bound by these false hopes that there is a fountain that can, that can heal is called the pool of Bethesda. But Jesus is saying, no, how's that working out for you? It hasn't worked out for all these years. You need a healer far greater than that. And the one who asks you the question stands before you today as the only one who can make you well. And the problem and the challenge for a great many of us is we, quite frankly, don't think our situation is that desperate. And unless we do, we'll never go to a doctor. Isn't that why Jesus said, this is how hard it is. It's, it's as hard for, for a rich person. Why is it so hard for a rich person to go to heaven? It's, this is how hard it is. It's like trying to stuff a camel through the eye of a needle. Why? Because rich people, quite frankly, don't think we're that bad. And I say we, maybe it's a Freudian slip, but here's our reality. If you're in here today, we are richer than probably 98% of the rest of the world. How hard is it? Why is it so hard? Because we don't think we're that bad. Last week, uh, we started to notice that our little five-year-old boy, Elijah, um, you might see him running around here. Uh, Our five-year-old boy, Elijah, had, had been having these, like, difficult time breathing. It's been like a couple weeks. So he'll be running around or he'll be doing something. He'll be laying down to sleep and he'll sit up and he'll take like a couple really deep breaths. Said, this is kind of odd. But we said, you know, it, it, doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem to be affecting the way that he lives or does anything. And so we just didn't think anything of it. As time went on, as the days went by, he would continue to do this. And I said, Elijah, are you, are you okay? Like, what are you, what are you doing when you do that? He says, he said, Daddy, I have a hard time breathing. It's hard to, to breathe. I said, is it always like that? He said, no, it's, <clears throat> it's hard when I walk and it's hard when I run. And, and sometimes when I walk to school or when I run, it's hard. I said, do you, do you, do you um, have a difficult time? Like you go to pee, when does it bother you the, the, the most? And he said, when I'm on the playground with my friends and I'm running and when I'm at PE. 
So I said, Elijah, are you able to, are you like able to go to PE and stuff? And, and he said, yeah, I'm able to. I said, what do you do? What do you do in PE? And he said, we do basketball, like we bounce the ball and uh, we do throw bean bags in, I guess it's cornhole. He said, do bean bag toss and <coughs> we jump rope and you know, we do all these other things. And I said, Elijah, are you able to do PE? Do you want us to, to tell the teacher? And, and he said, I can do PE. I said, what, what do you do in PE? He says, well, uh, I can do the beanbag toss. Which is like so sad. Like so sad. You just <laughs> it's your physical education right here. Said, Elijah, that's so sad. We should, maybe we need to see a doctor. So Olive and I were talking about it. I said, oh, it doesn't seem to be bugging him too much. I think it's okay. And then it, it, when, when he, he, that beanbag thing was the saddest. And so I said, Olive, let's call the doctor. <laughs> I don't want him to just be doing this all day. And so she called the doctor, and she called me back, and she's like, okay, uh, he's going to see Dr. Middleton after school today at, at 4.30. I said, okay, good. A few minutes later, she called back, and, and, and Olive was like, the nurse said she talked to Dr. Middleton, and Dr. Middleton said she thinks, he thinks Elijah needs to go to the ER right away. I said, really? Because you see, if we don't realize how desperate the situation is, we won't ever seek a doctor. And a lot of us are just living life thinking we're all right. And my spiritual life is okay. Yeah, I've got these sins in my life, but it's not that bad. See, I, I think the greatest gift that these people at the pool of Bethesda had was that they knew how jacked up their lives were. And they knew that they needed healing. That was the greatest gift that they could have. You go to these people, you're walking by the pool of Bethesda, you see these people, your heart is moved with compassion, with mercy, you walk over to them, say, how you doing? Can you imagine these people? You've got, it says, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. You see a blind person, you see a lame person, you see a paralyzed person, how you doing? I think their response would be like, are you kidding me? How am I doing? I'm blind. I can't see. Yeah, there's going to be an eclipse. I can't even see that. I'm already blind. There's nothing good going on in my life. I'm paralyzed. I haven't been able to move for years. Someone has to pick me up and move me. This is my life. You think I'm doing all right? The greatest gift that these people had was they knew how desperate their situation was and how much they needed help. And for some of us, the greatest gift of mercy that God can give to us Today is to help us to see how desperately we need Jesus. Because quite frankly, a lot of us think, I'm, I'm okay. I don't need Jesus. I can do it without you. Thank you very much. That's the way a lot of us think. I remember talking with a guy, um, and maybe this is, um, if you don't understand what this means because you're in sixth grade or seventh grade or, or you're whatever, then it's okay. But for those of you who can understand, several years ago, I met with a guy outside of a Starbucks in Ocoee who had, uh, just a week earlier, been arrested, been convicted of trying to solicit a 14-year-old minor on a website called Backpage. Okay. And I was sitting with him outside of Starbucks, and I said, dude, what happened? What's going on? He's a grown man, right? He's in his 40s. He's got a wife. He's got children. Very active in ministry. I said, what's going on? He said, oh, nothing. It was just a spiritual attack in that moment. I said, you never had anything like this happen before? said, oh, no, never, never. No issues with, like, you know, struggling with anything like that. He's like, no. I said, listen, man, I, I've got some Christian counselors that can work out this stuff in you. 
He's like, no, I don't, I don't need that stuff. I don't need anything. I'm all right. And I, I thought to myself, I said, you're soliciting a minor which is deviant behavior. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. And the greatest problem for him wasn't that it was that thing. He had a lot of problems. But his deeper issue was that he didn't realize how desperately he needed help and he was not willing to admit it. For some of us, the greater issue isn't our sin. It's that we don't understand how desperately we need help because we think we're okay. And we don't think it's that bad. I remember talking to, to some people. Man, some of us are like this too. It's like, hey, how, how's it going? How's your relationships? How are your friendships? Oh, you know what? I'm dating this, this girl and, and you know, I'm in seventh grade and she's in sixth grade. Yeah, how's that going? Oh, it's going, it's going really well. It's going really well. Yeah, tell me about it. Well, you know, we, uh, we have fun. We see each other. We write notes to each other at school. Okay, that's good. What's the biggest challenge? Well, the biggest challenge is that uh, she's not a Christian, right? The biggest challenge is that he makes me, uh, wants me to do things that go against my morals as a child of God. Right? Everything is great except for those two things. If you have to say everything is great except for dot, 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 then everything is not great. Do you understand? How's life going? Oh, life is going great. How's church going? Oh, I've been to church in a long time. Hey, if everything is going great except dot, 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 then everything is not going great. You've got to understand that. Whatever lies on the other side of except is a place that we need to submit to Jesus. And a lot of us are unwilling to do that because we don't think it's that bad. We think we can manage it. We think we can contain it. We think we can control it. We think we can keep it under wraps. As long as nobody's hurt by it, I think it's okay. There's sadly, man, maybe you go to the pool of Bethesda and someone's been sitting there for a long time. The great tragedy of the pool of Bethesda would be you go to somebody blind, lame, paralyzed, say, how's it going? And for most of their lives, they would say, life stinks. The great tragedy would be for them to look at you and say, hey, you know what? Things are going all right. Things are going all right. You think in your mind, how can things be going all right when you're, you're, you're paralyzed, you can't see? They think, well, it's just been like this for such a long time that there's no other way. I'm all right. The great tragedy, I think for many of us, is that we think I'm all right is the same thing as being all right. The great tragedy is not just that we're okay, but that we're okay with just being okay. When so much more could be available to you. We're blind, we're lame, we're paralyzed. There's so much more available. Jesus says, do you want to get well? The first thing we got to understand is how desperate our situation is. Second thing, second thing we have to, we have to see, you have to want to get well. <clears throat> You have to want to get well. That, I mean, it seems obvious based on the question. But a lot of us, when you peel back the, the layers of the question, a lot of us don't really want to get well. When Jesus asked this man, <clears throat> do you want to get well? Verse 7, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. The lame man gives a lame answer. Because he gives a lame excuse. Jesus says to you, do you want to get well? You have to want to get well instead of coming up with excuses 
for why you don't need to get well, for why you shouldn't get well, why it's impossible to get well. We say, that's just my personality. I'm just like that. That's just the way my family is. Man, I don't think, it's just the way we are. We're from, uh, I don't know, we're from this certain town in Korea. That's just the way we talk. We're always talking like we're angry like that. But man, if all these people are getting hurt by it, maybe you got to think about changing the way you talk. See, we give a lot of reasons why we don't need to get well. The second thing we have to understand is if you want to get well, you have to want to get well. When we were in Virginia this one night, uh, Elijah was coughing, and and he kept waking me up in the middle of the night. I said, Elijah, are you okay? He said, Daddy, uh, I'm coughing. I said, yeah, I realize that. I know that. He said, Daddy, my throat hurts. I said, okay, uh, I'm going to go downstairs, and I'm going to get you some medicine, and this medicine is going to help you feel all better, okay? He said, okay. So he sat up in a way, and I went downstairs. I got some Robitussin and brought it upstairs, sore throat, all this stuff, cough. I gave it to him, and he drank it. He said, oh, Daddy, this tastes so yucky. This tastes yucky. I said, Elijah, it's okay. It's the yucky that makes you better, right? It has to taste yucky because that's the stuff that's killing all of the cough and all the sore throat. He said, no, Daddy, it's too yucky. I said, Elijah, just cover your nose, plug your nose, and then drink it. He said, no, Daddy, I don't want to do it. And so I, this passage was in my mind. I went full on Jesus. I said, Elijah, (laughs) do you want to get well? said, no, Daddy, no. <laughs> so I put the Robitussin away, resigned to a sleepless night because of a coughing child. If you want to get well, you have to want to get well. What Jesus is saying when he asks this question, do you want to get well? He's not asking a simple, oh, yeah, do you want to get well? Of course, everyone wants to get well. What he's saying is let there be an uprising, a rebellion, a defiant shaking of your fist against the status quo of the way that your life is right now. How many people you know who want a better marriage? They complain because it went from wedlock to headlock in just three years, and I can't, I can't believe this is my life. Trapped behind the cell of your own marriage. I want more. Yeah, I want more. But they're not willing to go to a counselor, to a marriage conference, not willing to talk about with anybody else. If you want to get well, you have to want to get well. And that's a problem that a lot of us have. You want to beat that addiction? You want to beat this addiction? This, this, this way that you, 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 you define your identity by what other people think about you. You want to get over that? Yeah, I know that I know that I, uh, my, my fatal flaw is when boys come hollering, I always want to, I, I'm drawn to them. I know I shouldn't be dating, but if a guy asks me out, I can't say no to them. They know they want to get well, but at the end of the day, they don't really want to get well. The question we have to ask is, do you really want to get well? And Jesus is saying, let's defy, let's rebel against the status quo by saying, yes, I want to get well, and I'll do what it takes in order to get to that place. Because unless you change, nothing is going to change. Unless you do something, nothing is going to change. We're not going to get well. Here, I think, is one of the most insidious ways in which this happens. And I'm talking to anyone who's got any kind of authority over other people, whether it be a parent 
a teacher, a, a, a leader, a pastor, whatever your, whatever your position might be, a lot of us are okay to remain where we are and we justify it by saying, but I'm helping other people. But I'm being used by God. But everyone else says I'm doing a great job. But all these other people are being changed by me. Right? Just because... God is using us, and I say this to myself as well as a check of my own heart. Just because God uses us does not mean that he approves of the lifestyle that we're living. Just because God uses us doesn't mean that we're walking the way that God wants us to live. All it means is that he loves the people that we're serving, and he wants to bless them even in spite of our brokenness and our flaws. I know how this is. It's a lot easier for me to tell other people what to do than it is for me to change myself. I know this as a parent. That's why I can be so hard on my kids. Manny, do this. Elijah, do this. Elise, do this. Or go to timeout because I can't put myself in timeout. It's a lot easier for me to discipline my kids than it is for me to go through the discipline of God for my own life. Any of you parents feel the same way? It's a lot easier to scold them for what they're doing wrong than it is for me to say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And a lot of times, we do this because it's a lot easier to change others and to change the world than it is to let God change us and do that hard work in us. The question that Jesus asks for all of us here do you want to get well? Will you rebel and rise up against the status quo of your life? Will you rise up against mediocrity? Will you overcome this sense of I'm okay and I'm okay with being okay? Or will you fight for more because Jesus has so much more available for you and for me? The last thing, you want to be changed by Jesus. You want to have a life-changing encounter. Not only have to know how desperate the situation is, not only do you have to want to get well, but you have to Know that healing comes on Jesus' terms, not ours. That healing comes on Jesus' terms and not ours. Then Jesus said to him, verse 8, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Right? Once Jesus knows his heart, yeah, okay, I want to get well. Or whether he, maybe he doesn't want to get well at that point. But Jesus gives him this ultimatum. And he says, here it is, get up. Okay, the one thing that he, for 38 years he couldn't do. Pick up your mat, which symbolizes all of your brokenness, and walk, move into a new destiny. That's what he's saying. Now, your situation is desperate. 38 years, you've been a crip. <laughs> not a gang crip, but you've been crippled, okay? The bloods are coming after you, not like that. Okay, for 38 years, you've been crippled, right? You realize your situation. You want to get well. Here's how you know. I'm going to tell you what you need to do because healing is available if you would reach out your hand and grab this. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk and leave this place of false hopes behind. Will you do it? So in this moment, this man hears these words. And in that moment, Jesus opens up this door where if he follows Jesus' command, his life is going to be changed forever, beyond his wildest dreams. 
And if he says, you know what? I want to remain where I am. Then for the rest of his life, the remainder of his life would be lived like the past 38. And I propose to you today that Jesus holds open the same invitation and opportunity. And he says, but you do it on my terms. Now you do it on my terms. For some of us, here's what that means. That means you need to stop a relationship today. You want to get well? For some of us, that means you need to begin to confess something to God and to other people that's been keeping you down. For some of us, that means you need to begin to forgive somebody that you've been salty and bitter towards. <laughs> Not salty in the salt of the earth kind of way, but you've been, you've been salty at them. And you've got to let go of that. Because here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. Inevitably, it plays out this way. The reason we're hurt is because there's something within us, and hurt people will always end up hurting other people. The very people that you thought you were protecting, my children, are going to feel the collateral damage, the carnage, and the fallout from your brokenness because you chose not to deal with that. The people that you care about, the people that you love, the people that you're trying to invest into are going to feel that because hurt people always hurt people. And so here he opens up this door of invitation and he says, will you walk through it? Our daughter, Elise, has not had um, outside, of, uh, outside of her uh, uh, back to school night, her teacher giving something to her. She hasn't had uh, what we call treats in a long time. It sounds like she's a dog or something like that, but treats are like candy, ice cream, like cookies, sweets. She hasn't had anything like that for, what's it been like, a couple weeks or so, right? Maybe a week or two. Because school starts tomorrow for our little girl, and she needs to be potty trained because no teacher's going to, you know, wipe her backside. And so she's got to learn how to do that. And so we've been saying, Elise, okay, <laughs> uh, if you know a better way, tell us. But we said, no treats until you go poop in the toilet. Okay? And every day she says, tomorrow I'm going to do it. Tomorrow I'm going to do it. Tomorrow I'm going to do it. But she won't do it. It's, been like two, it's actually been like months. But we just started this treat thing like uh, for the past week or so. And she hasn't had any of that stuff. And she's like going through withdrawal and... A couple nights ago, <laughs> a couple nights ago, someone was over. It was their birthday, and so we had a birthday cake. And Elise knows she's not allowed to have birthday cake. We're singing happy birthday to you, all this stuff. And the whole time, Elise is, she's, I've never seen her on such good behavior. But her hands were folded like this at the table. She's like looking at the cake, and every now and then she'll look at Olive and look at me, and then she'll look back, and she'll just kind of <laughs> look around. <laughs> just to make sure that we're seeing what she's doing, right? She's being a very good girl in this moment. And, and we, the candles are blown out. We cut the cake. Here's one for, you know, a birthday person, birthday person's friend, mommy, daddy, nanny, Elisha. Yeah! Elise <laughs> uh, is sitting here like this. And what about my cake? Elise, you want to go poo-poo in the toilet right now? And she got really upset, and so we had gone to the, to the uh, Fashion Square Mall and got, like, this fireman's hat that they were, fire people were giving out, and it was on top of the table, and so she took it and she threw it on top of the cake because she was so upset. No, I don't want to go poop in the toilet. The next day, the kids were all playing outside with Olive, and they, they ran inside. 
they were sweating, and Manny and Elijah ran to the freezer and opened it up, and Manny got a fudge bar, and Elijah got a fudge bar, and Elise said, Mommy, what kind of dessert can I have? <laughs> Mommy said, you can't have desserts, Elise, unless you want to go poo-poo in the toilet. It's so sad, but look at what I'm doing. I'm like such a good girl. She knew exactly what needed to happen in order for her to get what she wanted, but she was trying to do it on her terms and not ours and not mine. A lot of us know that we want the healing that Jesus offers to us, and we know what Jesus is telling us to do, but we want to do it on our terms, not on his. And so we remain trapped in where we are, unable to rise from this place of brokenness. This moment, guys, there's a fight for your destiny and for your future. And when God tells you what you need to do, like for the rest of your life, your life can be changed. You hear the word of God and you follow. Or else, you can remain where you are. And in this moment, he does the one thing that for 38 years of his life he could not do. Why? He could have said, I tried, Jesus. I tried to do that. I couldn't do it. He didn't even know his name. I tried, sir. I tried. I couldn't. But for whatever reason, this defiance rises up in him. He gets up. He picks up his mat. And he walks out of there. And his life is changed forever. Because we have to realize who it is who's talking to us. He's the great physician. He can not only diagnose your situation, but he can prescribe your healing. He's the Lord of all. That's why the rich young ruler ended up becoming a poor young fool. He walked away sad because he did not do what Jesus called him to do. But here he does what... Jesus told him to do it. And then it says in verse 14, later Jesus finds him. He says, see, you are well again. Maybe that means that he was well before he got paralyzed for 38 years. But he says, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What is he saying? He's not giving a work salvation. Hey, if you don't, if you don't stop sinning, then you're going to get crippled in every part of your body again and your head's going to fall off. He's not saying that. What's the worst that's going to happen? It's not a paralysis of your body. It's the death of your soul. Because you see, Jesus' greatest aim is not for the healing of your body. It's for the salvation of your soul. Who is it that talks to you? He's the great physician. He's the Lord of all, but he's the Savior of the world. And he came in that place to one person who thought that hope had died and that nothing could be done. He went to the worst of the worst, the one who was ready to give up. And for those of us who feel like my situation has been like this, forever. He comes to you and he comes to me and he says, do you want to get well? Because you see immediately after this, instead of people praising Jesus, the crowds turn on him and they begin to plot for his arrest so that ultimately they might nail him to the cross to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said, by his wounds we are healed. And so today, Jesus says, I've paid the price already. The question he asks with laser-focused clarity to each and every single one of us 
today. Do you want to get well? Let's pray. Do you want to get well? Do you see how desperate your situation is? Some of us, if we continue in this present trajectory, our choices, our actions, our habits are going to keep us from living in the fullness of what God wants for us to live. Some of us, if we continue in this present path, might no longer be with the one you call your spouse in five, ten years. Some of us, if we don't change the path we're on, we might not live to make it to 55. Do you want to get well? Do you see how desperate your situation is? Do you really want to get well? Change begins when the pain and the cost of staying where you are outweighs the cost and the pain to get well. When your status quo becomes so unbearable that you say, whatever it takes for me to be made well, I do. I surrender to you, Jesus. Do it your way. Take me. Have your way in me. All to Jesus. I surrender all to you. I freely give. I can't lead my life on my own. Oh, how I need you, Jesus. Do you want to get well? What we pray here over these next few moments is crucial. There's an enemy that wants to steal your destiny and rob you of your joy and rob you of your purpose. How will you respond? Not only now, but in the future, this question will continue to arise and it will continue to pursue you in the next couple weeks and Lord willing, throughout the rest of your life, continue to want to rebel against the status quo. Lord, heal me. I want to be made well. Let's pray for a couple minutes right now pray, Lord, help me to take that first step to get up. Maybe to take that second step to pick up my mat to move on from this broken place. Maybe take that third step to walk, to move. Let's pray together. Let's pray together for a couple moments. I'll pray on our behalf and then we'll continue to respond confessing our need for God and for his mercy in our lives. We're here, the house of mercy, the pool of mercy. Mercy flows into this place. Will you drink of it? Let's pray for a couple moments.
Father in heaven, there are higher heights, there are deeper depths, whatever you need to do in us, Lord, do in us. We welcome you here. We want to get well, but Lord, help us to want it enough to step out in obedience to you. Thank you for coming to us when we were crippled, and we're blind, and we're lame. Thank you that you still come to us in our broken state. And you save and you heal us before you call us to obedience. This is amazing grace, and this is mercy. Flows from heaven to earth, from top to bottom, never failing to reach the ones who need it the most, never failing, never stopping before it gets to the one who thought it impossible, never stopping before it reaches the one who's so ready to give up and throw in the towel. Thank you that mercy reigns deeper than the deepest of seas. The Lord, may we jump into that pool. May we receive your mercy today. May we be made well in Jesus' name.